Hello, and welcome back to this brand new episode of Silmarillion Film Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, coming to you live from rainy Pasadena. Um, sort of been shockingly cold, rainy weather. It feels like I'm, I'm like in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I, I don't know what it is, like two podcasts in Rona. Last time it was just like we had like the freezing temperatures in the 40s. I know. And now we've got rain. Yeah. So what dreadful. is happening in California? It's like the yeah. apocalypse out there. Dreadful winter weather. So. <laughs> well, there's been mudslides, right, in the, in the really vulnerable areas. I don't know if that's yeah, up in that's the north the, or not, but uh, yeah, that's geez. the the not so amusing part is the uh, mm. the mudslide. So, yeah. uh, but anyway, but 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 the good news is that we're back with another Somerillion film podcast. Yay! And uh, and we're finally and we're fine. This this week we're going to. Um, finish up some discussions so that probably we can get to villains next time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the agenda topic set villains. is the villains, and we only have to couple, finish a couple things first. So yeah, that, yeah. The, the, yeah, no, the agenda says villains, so I assume that's next time. <laughs> we're absolutely going to begin talking about the villains. I have to admit, I don't have high aspirations of finishing our villain discussion today, but because yeah. there's a lot of things to talk about there. Um, yeah. But yeah. So, uh, so probably you uh, you probably noticed if you're listening even not closely that I'm joined as always by the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert. How are y'all? Corey, I think you have, some, you have some exciting news to share that people are probably aware of, but let's talk about it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So we we've uh, I've been having fun this week uh, talking to folks because we've had uh, our the so the Department of Education in New Hampshire officially made their uh, their press release. Um, uh, about the approval of uh, Signum, and the reason they waited this long is there was when they originally accepted us, they you know they they voted to approve us back in August, um, but there was a condition that we had to meet in order for it to be like official, official. It was unofficially official before, um, and that actually was this massive backroom project that I had to do, but we finished that, uh, and so having completed that. We are now like 100 percent. And uh, so the Department of Education released that press release. And it's been really fun. I was I spent so Tuesday I was down in New York uh, participating in a panel <clears throat> discussion at the Sheen Center, which was really fun, talking about the Morgan Library exhibit. Um, and uh, I had to drive down uh to new york through the snowstorm that was coming up on tuesday um and uh so it took me forever to drive down to new york because i drove down from new hampshire to new york at like 35 miles an hour and um anyway so it was it was really cool but uh and on the way down i was uh i did like two different phone interviews with journalists from new hampshire sources and stuff uh talking about signum and it's been it's been really fun we you know talked to new hampshire public radio talked to several uh different new hampshire newspapers and things and it's been really uh really neat uh, uh kind of getting some getting some circulation on that stuff uh so anyway that's been uh uh that's been that's been cool um and it was nice to uh, help me pass the very long drive on the way down to New York there. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been very exciting. And, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we're moving forward now on the next steps. So, you know, it's all it's all good. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very exciting I'm, to sort of be moving I'm, things I'm, along. Yeah, I'm super excited for you that this is um, such an important project. And it's great to see that it's that it's, you know, proceeding 
not getting um, you know unnecessarily blocked by stupid barriers. So um, <laughs> not for long, that. not for long. Yeah, no, the, that's and that's been sort of the moral of the last. Like that's really been the the narrative. It's not been a very public narrative because it's kind of it's sort of a boring narrative step by step, you know, in detail, it's been boring. The big picture though, uh, is exactly that Dave pushing past all the, uh, I mean, one after another, one bureaucratic obstacle after another, you know, uh, in the way of the things that we've had to do. And well, it's kind of like a quest, right? It's, <laughs> it's like a King a Arthur like a type Arthurian yeah. type quest, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's like kind of like your, the test your devotion. Where, you, where exactly yeah, you have to prove quest. yourself, you know, like are you exactly. are you are you true of exactly. heart in, enough to like do right. this? That's right. That's uh, right. I like that context. Like... I think that's how we should contextualize it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I have to tell you, sometimes confronted with bureaucrats like finding yet another I... reason to say no to something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, know. I prefer something more like a Lotro quest, like you know, go collect six logs. Right. That would have been better. You know, right, except but... it's it's more like one of those where like you're sent to go collect the logs and then when you get there you find that in order to get a log there's like another three quests that you have to accomplish <laughs> for which the final reward is one log right and then you have to go to do, I mean yeah that's uh, I, I, everyone would have quit the game if the quest chains were set up like the bureaucratic <laughs> stuff I've been doing uh, nobody wants that much realism uh, <laughs> for a title, right? Yeah, like, exactly. For a title. Nobody wants. I mean, oh my goodness! Like Slayer deeds are so much more engaging than like what I've been doing. But anyway, uh, no. Uh, so, but it's but it's you know we've been making progress and and uh, and it's been you know it's it's really fun to hit another milestone here and keep moving forward. So we're we're excited about that. Um, and. Uh, uh, just quick announcements as you know uh, other things to get excited about with signum here is our spring moot season been talking about this but we're getting closer now sunshine moot down near orlando florida on march 23rd and nader moot in leiden in the netherlands on april 13th both gonna be both brand new moots first time moots over there the uh, nader moot is sort of the the rotate so you may remember last year we did london moot our first uh, uh moot outside of america um, and this is kind of the uh, we're probably going to be rotating between the UK and the continent I think that's kind of the idea um, so this is sort of so the Nader moot is kind of a brand new moot because we've certainly never been in the Netherlands before but it's also uh, sort of the heir of London moot the sort of the, or the partner of London moot perhaps um, Anyway, so these are going to be uh, uh, both of them a lot of fun I'm uh, uh, very much looking forward to uh, to those Um and then, of course, Myth Moot 6, which is the big one, our big annual conference, four-day conference, June 27th through the 30th. Uh, and that's going to be located, as always, in the D.C. area in Leesburg, Virginia, right near Dulles Airport. Um, and uh, registration is open for all three of these. You can go to the Myth Moot page at signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot. You can go to the individual moot pages as well. Just go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down a little bit, and you'll see uh, a, a little... Uh, tiles linking you to uh, any of those three moots uh, and, and uh, the registration is open for all of them the, uh, you can also uh, submit uh, proposals if you want to uh, lead a discussion or present something uh, at those conferences um, you are welcome to do so so um, uh, that would be a lot of fun so anyway I am looking forward to all three of these events and hoping to uh, meet many of you uh, at those uh, 
at those places. Oh yes, one quick note about Mythmoot. Uh, lodging is not yet open, so uh, to to uh, there is lodging there at the event. Um, it's substantially cheaper and far more convenient because you'll be right there in the like Mines of Moria complex with uh, everybody else. It's pretty cool. Um, but the registration for lodging isn't open yet, so don't panic. Just register, and then we'll get the we'll, we'll let you know as soon as uh, uh, lodging is open for registration on that. So, um, the the um, uh, the the registration price includes all of your meals, so it includes the conference and all the meals and everything. So the only other uh, the only other expense for Mythmoot is the lodging, and as I say, we get a discounted rate there uh, uh, for rooms. So so don't worry, don't panic about the lodging. It'll it, it'll be there, and if you've registered already, you'll be the first to know uh, when that opens. So uh, so d don't uh, don't be troubled about that. Okay, those are our announcements today. So. We are gonna we're gonna look at an overview here, and here's my goal today. My goal today is not to spend like an hour and a half talking about this slide because I'm gonna move on to like the other slides. But uh, an overview of what we're gonna be talking about uh, and what we may or may not get through all of in today's session. Um, the big question, in, so we're gonna start off by finishing our AOL discussion, which I'm sure will not take very long. Uh, but after that, we're gonna be talking about the villains and what are the villains doing in season four, and there are a bunch of issues. Issues here. So here are some things that the villains may or may not be up to, stuff that we need to think about. Um, they, to make clouds of volcanic ash to blot out the sun whenever they go out, whenever they want to go out and about, we have to remember that we had the sun rising at the very end of season three, and dealing with the sun is going to be a major uh, feature. You see a couple points down, teach orc armies to function in daylight. Uh, I think that... Um, uh, that would be really fun. Uh, that is to have um, like a training montage, right, for the orcs. Uh, you know where they're <laughs> where they're training them <laughs> to go out in the sunlight. Uh, um, I, I, I think that would be. Uh, uh, there should be, be like cool. an orc version of a haka. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. Here, so, oh, by the way, one thing that I'm thinking. We need to make sure that we never miss an opportunity to play the long game in the film film show, right? Obviously. So one of the things that I really, really want with the volcanic ash thing and the orc armies, when we have the Dagor Aglareb, when, when we actually have the assault and the big battle, I would like to have... Uh, like a you know a wall of 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 you know ash cover uh, and then the orc armies following along behind as of course a foreshadowing of the dawnless day in the return of the king um, you know Sauron didn't invent most of this stuff right most of the stuff that he does is in emulation of Morgoth yeah. Um, yeah so that would be a great way both to emphasize the great advantage that the sun gives here still, because it's still very early days on the sun, even after a few hundred years, it's still early days on the sun, right? So um, we need, we do need to show the impact of the sun on the bad guys. And so having them fighting under shadow uh, would be obviously one really good thing to do. And if we can take advantage of that to do that kind of foreshadowing, I think that that's, uh, uh, that that's really good. And Marie, I agree. Where there's a whip, there's a way, right? Um, showing the orcs <laughs> having to be driven out into the sunlight, uh, I think would be a great thing for a couple reasons, right? One thing, we do want to show that the orcs are slaves, right? Um, you know, they're not just, they don't just do what they do recreationally. Um, 
they uh, uh, and so showing that they're being compelled to do something that brings them actual pain, uh, I think would be uh, would be a good thing for us to show. Um, anyway, okay, so no, another thing uh, that they freak out when Thorandor helps some elf rescue Mithras. Yes, um, Thorandor. We haven't used Thorandor before, have we? Right? I mean, Thorandor, the the great eagle, has not made an appearance. Right? I don't think he has. Did uh, we ever have him do anything with Manway? I don't, I don't think, think he has. We did. I Gee, who are we going to cast for him? <laughs> Casting Thorondor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, an understated but very cool role, right? Who wouldn't want to have that uh, on, yeah. uh, on, their, on, uh, their... on the resume, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Okay, so we haven't done that yet, which is actually very suitable because, of course, we know that eagles and Ents are kind of connected conceptually, right? So having just released Ents in the last season, uh, releasing the, the eagle here in episode one, right, when, Th- when uh, Thorondor... Co- and having Thorondor coming essentially out of nowhere, right, um, and have everybody, Morgoth as well as Fingon and Mytheros, right, be surprised uh, when Thorondor comes... Um, would be uh, would be a cool thing, and having that happen at the beginning of the season, I think, really works. One of the things, of course, we're going to be talking about, as you can see at the bottom of this list, is the making of dragons, and that's where I think Thorondor is going to be really relevant because I think that Thorondor can be a kind of inspiration uh, for the making of Glaurung. Um, that the the dragons are kind of the anti the anti eagles, not in the sense of like. Not anti-eagles in the sense of like, you know, uh, like uh, anti-aircraft weaponry. I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, uh, like his version of the eagles, right? To, to, he wants to create something that is in some sense like the eagles. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, ooh, Brandon has a really interesting... Uh, um, uh, Point that he, he suggests that Thorondor should be voiced by the same person who plays Manway. Um, maybe not in exactly the same voice, so it's not like he's just speaking with Manway. Oh, exact Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. yeah, having Daniel Day Lewis uh, 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 voice him as well in a, in sort of a different voice, so that you can hear the similarity. I, that's cool. I like that. Um, okay. All right. Um, okay. So he's, so I, Nick is pointing out now. Wait, we did have. We did reveal him a little bit. He's not coming out of completely nowhere. Um, at the in, We had both the Ents and the Eagles involved in the fight protecting Quivienen in the war to begin all wars at the end of season one. Um, but that's still practical. It's certainly still like nowhere to almost everybody involved. And even Morgoth, I would think, would not have been necessarily like he had other things to think about you know that you know Tolkas was breaking into Utumno at the time right so uh, even he I think perhaps might not have been aware of the role that the Ents and the Eagles played uh, in that particular uh, battle uh, during that point um, and as Nick points out it's been a long time I mean it's it's been several years now since that happened so um, uh Anyway, yeah, so um, let's, uh, uh, yeah, and Tony asks, are we going to get into the creation of trolls? An excellent question, Tony. Um, we've already introduced trolls, right? We introduced trolls at the end of season four with the capture of, uh, of, of, of Mithros. Um, 
I think we could allude to it, um, perhaps, because as Brandon uh, Lovesy was pointing out, uh, you know, we sh- you know we could think about s- some kind of a sil- uh, 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 of a uh, analogy, right? Like uh, 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 trolls are to ants as dragons are to eagles, right? And that that's Brandon pretty much what I was thinking uh, there. Um, anyway, so. Thorondor is going to be the beginning of that discussion, I think. Uh, and so I definitely would want to tie Thorondor's appearance in. In uh, the earliest versions um, of the Silmarillion material, Tolkien had Thorondor establish his iries, right? His, so he, his base was on the peaks of Thangarodrim itself, uh, which is kind of boss. I mean, don't get me wrong that there's something kind of awesome about that. Right. Um, however, I'm not sure that we actually want to go there. Tolkien himself changed that in later uh, versions. And uh, I'm really not sure that ultimately that's kind of where we want to go with it. Um, but uh, we do need to perhaps think about, I mean, I guess if we're, we're going to put them up in the mountains around Gondolin, right? Um, so we can do that. Uh, but anyhow, uh, obviously we're going to want to be a little, uh, selective with how we use Throndor as a character, right? He can't be heavily involved all the time, uh, or that's going to be troublesome. But anyway, okay. So, uh, those are that that in, involved with the making of dragons as well. Continuing to go, we've got to figure out. Uh, uh, so the bad guys have to figure out that the second children have awakened and go corrupt them in Hildorian. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. Um, we have the capture and release program, capturing the elves, making them prisoners, questioning them, and 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 perhaps releasing them, spying on the elves. Um, that is another thing that the bad guys have to do. They need to spread rumors among the Sindar about the Noldor's questionable actions in Valinor, which is premised upon their discovering the truth of the kinslaying, right? So they start to leak this uh, and and uh, start to stir up the pot there. Um, we need to start the Dagor Aglareb, uh, the glorious battle, by sending a large quantity of orcs to attack Beleriand, and this does not go well. How does that happen? Why does it happen in the way that it does? What's behind that? Um... We need to send a small army of orcs north and down the coast in an attempt to surprise Hithlum, and Fingen is not surprised. I'm wondering if we want to combine that with the Dagor Aglareb, but maybe we don't. I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, as we said, we got to make dragons, and uh, we need Glaurung to escape. That's going to be the very end of Season 4, when he escapes and makes a mess of Ardgallen um, and is dealt with by Fingen's mounted archers. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the dragons. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Cool. All right. Um, so that's those are the things that we're going to talk about, and I think you can see why I am not completely sanguine that we are going to complete talking about every single one of these things uh, during today, especially since that's not what we're going to start with. We're going to start with Aeol because there were really two things that we didn't finish up in talking about Aeol last time, and those were primarily about sequencing. Okay, like when exactly does the purchase happen and how do we do that? Right? Um, So, okay. 
we have Aeol coming to Nan Elmoth and discovering that, um, like the sort of residual magic and making his, you know, and eventually making it into his own like warped little version of, uh, of the girdle of Melian, uh, as we discussed, um, Thingol and Melian discovering that, uh, you know, their honeymoon spot is, uh, is now being squatted in by this sort of weird Avari dude. Um, And we had talked about the transaction. I can't see Thingol saying to Aeol, I'll let you live here, but you've got to give me a sword. Like, I can't see him seeking the sword like that's what he wants, right? I'm thinking that this has got to be some kind of compromise um, where he's willing to allow Aeol to stay. He would kind of like for him to go. He's willing to allow Aeol to stay, but Aeol doesn't... um, is totally unwilling to, he wants to know first and foremost, Thingol wants to know, like, is this guy reliable? Like what's up with him? Right. Um, and can he, can he trust him? Is he going to be an ally? Is he like, you know, is he corrupted? Is he one of the bad guys? Like what's going on here, um, with this guy? Exactly. Um, he wants some kind of, he wants something, Right. From Aeol to show that, like, if he's going to be living nearby, Thingol has to know that he can not have to look over his shoulder at him all the time. Right. My thought is that the purchase is ultimately something that Aeol, and I was talking about this last time, both that he suggests while also begrudging. Right. He doesn't feel like he needs to prove anything. He doesn't feel like he needs to give anything. But it's clear that Thingol wants something from him. What Thingol wants from him is, like, his loyalty, right? Um, Ale won't give that, and Ale doesn't think that way anyway. So my thought is that this is kind of a the whole projected cost, um, you know, that him giving him Anglachel is... Aeol suggests it because he thinks this is the kind of this is the only this is the kind of thing that Thingol wants, right? That he's demanding some kind of price from him, um, so he suggests begrudgingly suggests uh, uh, suggests this. My thought is that Thingol would initially reject it or want to reject it. You know that his response to this proposal from Aeol would be like, "Dude, I don't want your sketchy sword, right? I, I'm not looking for." payment from you. And Melian would be like, uh, I think we should just take this, right? Because this is how he thinks. And like this, this, like, basically, if you don't accept this, it it kind of reminds me of, uh, I'm I'm thinking of Frodo and Faramir, right? Uh, when Faramir is trying to get something from Gollum and like an oath from Gollum to show that Gollum is going to be trustworthy. And remember where Frodo says, you must either take this or or carry out your law because you'll get no nothing more from him than this. I'm kind of thinking of that same kind of dynamic, right? Where Melian is like, look, he he offered to pay you with a thing that he made, which he clearly values. This is the most you're going to get from him, right? This is the highest form of, uh, you know like voluntary uh, uh, kind of tribute that he's going to offer, right? Um, If you don't take this, you have to just kick him out or, you know, fight him or whatever, because uh, 
it's this or nothing, clearly. And so he's like, okay, uh, I accept your price of the sword. And this is, of course, why Anglachel has been gathering dust until uh, until Beleg claims it later on, right? He's had this awesome sword. He doesn't use it. Nobody else uses it, right? They kind of keep it in the back cupboard because they're not, like, Melian is not comfortable with this sword, as she expresses when Beleg, um, when Beleg gets it. Um, so Marie, yeah, I like the fact that we, we show, we establish Melian as like having insight that, uh, Thingol actually listens to, which is kind of nice, right? We don't want to start too early with the Thingol. We have to have, we have to establish that connection, right? Of Melian being the wise one whom Thingol listens to, uh, and, uh, so that when he stops listening to her, it's a big deal. Right. Um, so I think that would be cool. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Julius says maybe Melian is like this sort of sketchy and I don't want the sketchy dude to have it. Well, yeah, but the problem is he's got one just like it. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, and what's more, he made it right. So the point is not that like, he will have one fewer sword. The point is that, I mean, he's the source of it, right? So the fact that the sword is sketchy tells you something about his own personal sketchiness, right? And so despite misgivings, Thingol is going to sort of err on the side of generosity of saying, you know, letting him stay and not only letting him stay, but letting him claim their honeymoon spot. And then later on, I think they're going to be troubled by what they see, right? When they see what Nan Elmoth, be- Elmoth becomes under Aeol's, you know, guidance, um, under Aeol's influence, I think they're going to be more concerned. But now they're kind of stuck, right? They've given him permission and they can just kind of keep an eye on him and hope for the best, basically. Um, but he's going to be an awkwardness. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. He's awkward. Um, so, all right. Um Sequence, though, if that's how it plays out, when does this play out relative to the rising of the sun? That is to say, relative to the actual chronological events of season four, do we have to do this in flashback in some way? Right. How much of Aeol do we contain in season four? And if this doesn't happen in season four, how do we get around to this backstory. Uh, how can we give that? Um, I am thinking that, yes, his settling in Nan Elmoth has to happen before the sun rises. He can't just be a newcomer right now, I wouldn't think. Um, and I would think also that his reputation, even like him being called Dark Elf, um, I'm thinking that that's a nickname that the Feanorians give to him, like Carinthir and Kelegorm call him Dark Elf, uh, right, uh, later on during the Arathel story. Um, and I think that they could give him that name, right? They arrive and they, um, and they see, and like, the, so they come to Nan Elmoth and are like, whoa, what the heck is going on here, right? And so they probably meet Ale. I would think that he would meet them because he would recognize that, he doesn't want them just coming in and knocking on his door, right? So Ale would probably go out to greet them and figure out what they just to 
suss out what they want and everything. In anyway, he's definitely going to meet the Feanorians because he has to pass through the Feanorian lands in order to get to uh, Belagost, right? So, um, anyhow, they arrive and find him established and find Nan Elmoth is already dark and sketchy by the time the Feanorians get there. They nickname him Dark Elf. Um, uh, and so we do, I think maybe we have an episode starting, like an episode in which Aeol features. Um, we can begin an episode perhaps with a flashback uh, to the time before the rising of the sun. And um, we can have like the sort of meeting of Aeol and Thingol and, and uh, met with the Thingol and Melian's discussion and everything and introduce Anglakel. Uh, that I think we can do. Um yeah, Hakan, he's going to be using the dwarf road passing through Karanthir's lands. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, so we can have a, we can have a flashback, both, I agree, Hakan, to his arrival in Beleriand and then to uh, the purchase of Nan Elmoth. Um, now, the question of his relationship with the dwarves and with Telkar in particular. Um, I do like the story. Um, so there are a couple things that I like about uh, the story that we had thought of for last season and then ended up cutting from last season because we didn't really have a place for it. Um, the business about Aeol and Telkar working together and then Telkar being creeped out by Anglakel and Anguirel uh, and basically kind of the two of them, uh, you know, her kind of unfriending him after that. And there are several things that I like about that. Uh, one thing that I like about that is I like having an example, uh, I mean, especially with the petty dwarves plot line that we've already talked about. Um, the dwarves that we, we run a risk of making the dwarves look just like categorically more wicked than the elves. Right. Um, I, I'm not saying that they are. I'm saying that we run the risk of having people think that that's what we're saying um, by the whole oppression of the petty dwarves and things. And we, you know, we talked about that. The whole, you know, Norn's involvement in the uh, uh, in the sail out from under the petty dwarves and the second banishment of the petty dwarves and stuff. The, you know, the dwarves of Belagost are not gonna be um, are not gonna be coming off looking looking really well there. And Nick, I agree, they kind of are. But the point is, we don't want to make it. We don't want to. We don't want to allow people to think that we're just that's just kind of black and white, right? Um, so I, I'm just saying I like the idea of having Telkar basically have moral objections to show Telkar taking the moral high ground, while she would certainly admire um, Ail's abilities, right? Um, she, you know, she would look at Anguirel and Unglakel and say, on the one hand. This is excellent craftsmanship. On the other hand, something ain't right with these swords, and I think that something ain't right with you, right? Um, and to have her be kind of um, appalled, right, and back off from that and just creeped out by Aeol, I, 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 just, I think that's a good look for her, and we want Telkar to be good, right? Because one of the things we're establishing with Aeol is that the heart of the smith influences the, the, the weapon, right? And since Telkar is the one who forges Narsil, and we don't want any question marks looming over Narsil, right? We don't want you know there to be any sense that... So establishing Telkar as pure of heart, right? is something that I think we really want to do. Uh, it's something it really behooves us to do. Um, so, uh, anyway, 
that's 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 my point. That's that's my personal point, and I just like the idea of making sure we have. I would like to show a dwarf like being good. Like that's all. I just want I I I want there to be a dwarf who is like making egregiously good moral choices. <laughs> I just think that would be nice to work that in uh, in the season, just to show that we're not you know painting with too broad a brush. Is all. Um. Uh. So the one of the sequencing questions here is, is she in on the forging? That was the story, as I recall, that was the story we were thinking about back in season three uh, when we were thinking of introducing Aeol back then, that uh, Telkar, he, they would be learning from each other. Telkar and Aeol would be working together. He would forge on Guiro and on Glakel, and she would back off, right? Um, if we're going to have the cooling of their relationship, you know, so, but obviously in this sequence, if the purchase of Nan Elmoth by Anglakel is happening in flashback, well, before season four, obviously we can't include their forging in this season, clearly. Um, ooh, Tony says, what if Narsal was made specifically to oppose Anglakel? That's interesting. I don't think we can pay that off, though. Um or Anguiro. I mean, Anguiro, of course, the de- remember that the destiny of Ang- we all know the destiny of Anglakel, which will be Turin's sword, of course. Um, Anguiro is the sword that Aeol keeps for himself and which Maiglin is going to steal and take with him to Gondolin, and it's ultimately going to perish with him. Uh, so we will last see Anguiro falling through the air with Maiglin as he tumbles off the walls of, of Gondolin. So, um... Uh, it will be significant in that it will become Maiglin's sword. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think we're going to have a hard time with that. Especially because, I mean, ultimately... Yeah, Murray, exactly. Neither Aravel nor Tuor are going to be using... Or Idril, right? Are going to be using Narsil. That's not what we were thinking of for that. So I don't think we can... We can we can have that. What I would I guess what I would rather could we, Tony is could we contrive to make that happen? Well, maybe. Except we, I'm 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 loath to go back on on our Narsil discussion uh, because I, I I liked where we ended up with that. We may end um, up with a mutiny too. You know, we have to be yeah, careful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. See, Marie, that's exactly it. We could get it to Tour, but I I I I really like Tour's axe. There are very few legendary axes in Tolkien's uh, world, so I kind of want to keep Tuor with his uh, awesome axe. It's just a good look, <laughs> and I kind of want to keep that. I, I don't know. Um, uh, so, because, um, I mean, let's face it. There are a lot of magic swords or people with awesome swords uh, in Tolkien. And how many magic axes are there? I mean, like Gimli uses an axe, but he's not got a magic axe, right? Uh, so I really, I really, I really want to, uh, which means, by the way, note to ourselves here, we, what's the history? What's the provenance of Tuor's axe? I mean, it could just be forged for him uh, in Gondolin. You know, I'd be fine. Uh, but... Um, uh, you know, some kind of uh, it might be cool to give it some kind of further history, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, point is, yeah, I don't think um, I don't think that I, I, I don't want to displace Turin's axe. Um, 
he's gonna get a sword. There's gonna be a sword hanging for him right in uh, uh, in Vinyamar because uh, there's a sword that comes with the the armor, right? If I'm recalling correctly. But anyway, whatever. Um, it's um, uh, it's it's we can we can come back but that's a later discussion that's a season five issue uh at earliest no it is a season five issue but still because we need to leave vinyamar and we need to put up the armor and stuff and whatever uh but that's not a season four issue so let's stop talking about it now um (laughs) so telcar what's the status ale still has to be going through he has to have this uncomfortable neighborly relationship with the feanorians right because he's still using the dwarf road through caranthir's territory so we're going to need at least one confrontation between caranthir and ale right where caranthir calls him dark elf to his face uh and caranthir's going to levy a toll isn't he <sighs> definitely going to levy a toll Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um and do it in a, and do it in a very uh overly aggressive um yeah. um sort of jerk way too. Right. Right. Is it, it's not going to be like a it's not going to be like a, a a check or no, it will be a checkpoint. It won't be like a bureaucrat. It'll be right. like it'll be like surround you with a with a yeah, with, with a, with a soldiers, gang with yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> Marie's still thinking about Narsil. We can't escape it. Um, she says we could have Turgon commission Telkar to make Narsil to put with Tuor's armor, which would make Tuor's sword the foil for Turin's. But if he's not going to use it as his primary weapon, then it like becomes a, a footnote, right? So yeah, um, Narsil's not a footnote. Narsil's not a footnote. Right, we can't yeah, make Narsil be... into like somebody's second best weapon, right? I mean, that would not yeah, be... yeah, yeah. We can't. It'd be that. better to it'd be better to just mention it, plant, and then pay it off twenty five years later. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and Tony, I agree. Tony suggests he should charge Ale twice what he charges the dwarves just out of spite. Um, yeah. Yeah, he should. Um, one of the oh. things, one of the things that Ale, Ale is going to pay. What, what's he going to pay? And he's what he primarily goes to Belagost for, right, is ore because he's not mining in non Elmoth, right? So he needs to make regular trips to the mountains in order to get ore. And remember mining, uh, and the, the mining and smelting of ores is like my specialty, right? That's what he's going to become famous for in Gondolin. So him kind of getting that and learning that, um, uh, from his father, uh, is, uh, uh, is cool. Right. So, establishing therefore at this point pre Miglin, uh that this is what Aeol is doing you know because they're, they're going to be saying like what are you doing and where are you going and he's going to be like uh, uh, and no his ponies don't need shoeing uh, sorry I just was accidentally quoting the Tralalalali song while saying that but the point is he's going to he's going to have to tell him what he's doing right where what, what he's up to and what he will be up to will be um uh, going to get ore from the mountains. And so that, of course, Caranthir sees a golden opportunity there, 
right? We talked last time about how to, you know, what is actually paid in tolls. This is not a coin-based economy. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's no common currency between the elves and the dwarves, so he's not charging them gold pieces uh, for their tolls. They're going to pay him in other things. Ale can obviously pay him in ore, and that he is going to begrudge. Right now, he has to, like, do twice as much work because half of his ore he's got to leave with Carinthir and... Um, uh, you know, that's, um, uh, yeah, uh, that's going to be, that's, that's going to make sense. We want, do we want a scene with Aeol in the mountains? I think we, we need to see him, um, somehow this, I would like the story of Telkar being creeped out by the swords to come out, right? Yeah. Uh, who tells it? Probably not Ale, right? He's not going to, obviously, he's not going to tell that story. <laughs> Telcar, or at least if he does, it's not going to sound anything like the real story. Um, uh, yeah, Nick is suggesting that, uh, uh, and Hakan was also both thinking that Carinthir is obviously going to be very interested in that special or, you know, that special metal that he's made. Um, Carinthir is going to admire his sword, right? Um, so, yeah, Nick is suggesting the current is constantly going to try to shake him down for his super secret, you know, meteorite or, um, uh, which, of course, he will not give under any circumstances. And Carinthir will let him go when it's clear that, like, he is prepared to fight them all rather than get like he will die before he will tell them that secret. Um, now Marie is cautioning us that we're making, we're beginning to make Carinthir a little thuggish, um, you know, and we shouldn't go too far overboard in making him, you know, just like a, a mafia bruiser. I agree. Um, we want to be, we want to not overdo Carinthir here. Um, that's fair. Um, and I think one of the ways, Marie, that we can show that is he's not like, so if he were just a thug, he would kill Aeol and take his sword, <laughs> right? Clearly, that's like the play there. Uh, he's got him outnumbered. Um, even if his sword is really awesome, they'll still be able to get it off him or he can shoot him with arrows or something, right? So, um, uh, but but he he's not going to do this. So we can show Carinthir, like he could, in theory, just... Uh, uh, murder ale and take the weapon, but he's, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Um, so, um, and ale is going to have all kinds of grudges, right? About how he's treated by Carinthir, even though we will see that Carinthir is not treating him as badly as he possibly could. Right. But ale is going to go away feeling like he's been shaken down, right? He's going to feel like he's, he's, he's had his lunch money taken from him, even though he actually, didn't have all of his lunch money taken from him, right? Just, just some, just, just some of it. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, I think, um, yeah, yeah. So who's going to tell the story about Telkar and the swords? It could be Telkar. We could work that. Okay. How about this? I'm going to, I'm trying to throw a bone to the people who want to work Narsil into the Unglockhell story there. Um, I still don't like, I, I still prefer our old Narsil story, so I don't want to change that. But we did involve Telkar, 
right? Like we had Telkar coming, uh, didn't we? Telkar was actually showing up at the uh, like. Telkar was traveling, um, so we had her in actual discussions, um, and Telkar telling that story. Here's what I like about that, especially if Telkar tells that story in the context of the moment of the like forging of Narsil, right? So as Telkar is discussing Narsil and forging Narsil, she can tell the story about Anglachel and Anguirel as kind of like a contrast, right? You know, that can kind of come up in that, in that context. Um, uh, uh, Nick asks, am I proposing that Telgar tell this story in exposition about the previous foreshadowing? Well, no, it's not foreshadowing, exactly. Like, um, my, uh, Mythros is there, right, in this incident with the forging of um, Narsil. And so if Mythros is there, Mythros will have heard about Aeol and his awesome swords, right? So that it could easily come up that way, right? Um, uh, Mythros could talk about the, you know, his brothers have told him of the remarkable sword that uh, that Aeol has, and is you know, is this going to be anything like that or whatever? And um, she is like, oh boy, yeah, let me tell you about those swords. Like, I was kind of in on that and then backed away from that project in a hurry because, yikes, right? Um, so that seems a natural enough kind of discussion to have. Um, and it's a way to, again, that way you have Narsil as the sort of positive thing, right? Uh, in con- it, it establishes the contrast between Narsil and Anglakel. Um, without actually sort of pairing them. Um, Hakan is wondering if uh, Telkar is mingling with the elves a lot. Didn't we have that? Didn't we? I, I, I mean, it was a couple weeks ago, so I don't remember. But um, does anybody remember? Dave, do you remember? Did we, didn't we have Telkar coming to Himring and, and, and being involved there? I feel like we did. I thought we did, too. It's been so long. Yeah. Um, isn't someone taking notes yeah exactly <laughs> well well, anyway uh, <laughs> people remember better than we can help us sort that out if it's if it's not her it's fine even if it's somebody else even if it's somebody like Norn they can still tell the story right I mean they still know uh, I would think that Telkar would not have been shy about speaking of that story right um, and so the dwarves would the you know, after this, the relationship between Eo and the dwarves would have cooled somewhat as like their great smith Telkar would have would have misgivings about him. And so, you know, and not be welcoming him anymore. And so therefore he would be a little bit less welcome. But like they, they still have enough. The dwarves in general, I mean, still have enough of an eye on the bottom line that they know he's he's useful. Right. They have learned stuff from him about. Um, uh, you know, metallurgy essentially. So, like, they're going to keep working with him, but he's not quite as welcome as he was before. Um, uh, okay. Um, yeah. Um, 
All right, excellent. Yes. Okay, good. So we did have Telcar going out. I thought we had Telcar going out. Okay, fine. So if, if it's Telcar herself, it's even better, right? Then we don't have to uh, have it be a rumor. We can have her direct reminiscence of this. Um, yeah. Now, I don't know. Do we even need a scene of Ale with the dwarves? I'm not sure that we do. So, you know, to what extent do we even put on screen this concept of uh, Ale's relationship with the dwarves cooling? I don't know that it's even necessary for us to do that. We still need him continuing to go. He's got to get his ore from somewhere and he's got to teach Myglin, right? And so Myglin, we know, is going to go with him to Belagost at times. So um, that still needs to be happening. I mean, he can't, he can't, uh, break it off with the dwarves completely um but that's fine okay i'm happy with that i mean it means that everything here right the story of the purchase of nan elmoth and the story of, of the sketchiness of unguiro and unglachel are both going to happen either in flashback or in exposition but that's kind of where we are right i mean both of those things happen before the rising of the sun and I still approve of our decision to cut Ale from season three. I, I it just, it would have been, there was no point for him. Like there was no outcome for him here. It fits right. Um, because the primary focus of season four, which was not the case in season three, the primary focus of season four is sort of working out the larger kind of tapestry of challenges in establishing this new elf you know, set of kingdoms here, right? This new el elvish realm here uh, in uh, in Beleriand. And Aeol is a part of that story, right? And of course, he's going to be playing a more direct role uh, later on, you know, in season five. So, um, uh, it, so it, it fits, even though he doesn't play a major role in the, like, big events of the season. Nevertheless, thematically, it fits uh, much more. Um, and thinking of the themes, right? The themes of reconciliation and forgiveness that we've been talking about. He's an interesting point there, right? And he does fit with that because of course he's one whom like Thingol is okay with him, right? Like that both the Feanorians and Thingol kind of agree to let him be and let him go. Right. Um, but that's not really mutual. And it's going to be, I mean, People can ask questions, right? It is a question to be asked. I think that we could establish it so that, you know, the question, was that the right call? You know, should they just have given Aeol the boot from the beginning? Um, wouldn't a lot of pro problems have been, like, were they too, uh, like, quick to overlook potential problems? Were they... Um, did they err on the side of, uh, of, of, of lenience, you know, when they just let Aeol stay and they, and they didn't see the warning signs, right. Uh, of, uh, of what he could be like. So anyway, I think that there are definitely ways in which the Aeol story in this way can be made to, to, to really fit and be a, a, an interesting kind of small counterpoint, uh, to a lot of the other things that we're doing. Instead of thinking of our story in season four as, you know, chaotic or scattered or uh, anything like that, I prefer to think of it as richly complex, right, and multivalent. That's my story. I'm sticking with it. Uh, <laughs> so, um, likely story. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, okay, so uh, let's. Um,
Let's keep going. Let's talk about the villains. Look at this. All right. Let's talk about the catcher. Look at us go. Yeah, I know, right? Two, three, three slides, not even counting the announcements. Okay. Um, the catch and release program. Uh, so, okay, let, let me let me read through this here to kind of get some of the framework, and then I, I've got some, I definitely have some thoughts about this. So, Sauron's long-term plan begins in earnest. After the Dagor Aglareb, he seeks to capture elves, break their wills, and then send them back to the Noldor as escaped captives. I'm not 100% sure of the sequence there, but we'll come back to that. Named elves who could potentially be made captive. That's been one of our questions, right? We don't want it. We can't just have red shirt elves. Um, if this is going to have any impact, we need to have named characters involved in this. We've said that for a while. So who are they going to be, right? Suggestions. Mythros. Rog. Uh, if you don't know Rog, uh, Rog is awesome. Rog is one of the captains of Gondolin. He dies in the fall of Gondolin, but he dies awesomely in the fall of Gondolin. Um, Ixthelion, also one of the captains of Gondolin, the one who kills Gothmog the Balrog eventually. Uh, Oradreth, biggest named character suggested on this list. Um, uh, Eldelote, who is uh, the wife of Vangrod, right? Uh, and then uh, so Penlod's invented brother Penlod is also one of the captains of Gondolin, only mentioned in the Fall of Gondolin, the old Fall of Gondolin story. Um, uh, Gelmir and Gwyndor. So Gwyndor is the uh, the one who is in the Turin story. He's the the escaped captive uh, who uh, meets up with Turin. And Gelmir is his brother who is captured and then killed, uh, thus precipitating. Uh, the Near Nyth Arnoidiad. Gimli the Blind is uh, a Noldo captive uh, of Tevildo back in the uh, Tale of Tenuviel. Uh, it's the first usage of the name Gimli, uh, who of course will... That name will be reallocated later on, so obviously we can't use it for an elf here. But of course he is a, a an elf captive actually in the story, so, you know, so his name is suggested there. Okay. I have some suggestions about the people involved, but let's continue thinking this through. So we have to think about how and when are they captured, under what circumstances, how does this work, uh, who and how will they serve as traitors, what's the what's the payoff of this program exactly from the bad guy's perspective. Um, uh, there's been a general movement. Ecthelion was suggested early as one of the people who could fit the profile here. Uh, he is not a popular candidate, we're told, um, because he needs to help Turgon build Gondolin. I agree. Um, uh, Ecthelion, you can't, you can't mess with Ecthelion, right? Um, and what's more, uh, never mind, wait, hang on, I'll come back to that. Uh, and the, the phrase that is used of for what Morgoth does to elves that he captures, uh, where they are placed under his domination, basically, is called the spell of bottomless dread. That's the phrase that Tolkien uses in the Book of Lost Tales. And it's pretty awesome, right? So what are we going to do with that? So um, let me <clears throat> let me start off uh, by kind of emphasizing a, a couple things here, right? First, what's the plan here? So forgetting how we're going to implement this, let's make sure that we're clear on the concept here, right? So the concept, 
I think that the catch and release program is clearly a Sauron initiative because this has the fingerprints of the film film Sauron all over it, right? Um, being this sort of devious thing, which is focused on the like manipulation and domination of people rather than some kind of military action, right? We've seen Sauron prefer to act this way very frequently, right? So this this sounds exactly like right up his street. So having Sauron initiate this. Um, my impulse, of course, is I don't want to leave behind the work with the villains that we've done before. And the Dagor Aglareb, just as the Catch and Release program sounds just like Silm Film Sauron, the Dagor Aglareb sounds just like Silm Film Gothmog, right? Um, a military struggle which does not, in fact, turn out well. It's like... Who among the bad guys is most likely to say Hulk smash and just have it not work because he didn't do the math properly, right? That sounds like Gothmug to me. Now, it could be Morgoth. We don't have to just, like, hand that off to a lackey and, uh, and uh, you know, get Gothmug in trouble for doing it. Um, and I, 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 I get that, Marie, the impulse to say they want Morgoth to be responsible for the Dagor Aglareb. And let's remember, he, he will be. He's responsible. He's the boss, right? So if he greenlights the Dagor Aglareb, it's his call, right? I think it should be Gothmog's, Gothmog's initiative. It should be what Gothmog is pushing for. It's still on Morgoth that he says yes, right? That he goes along with this. And I think that it would be, you know, Sauron could be maybe not actively against it. But, um, but yeah, no, the, the goal is not to exculpate Morgoth from the Dagor Aglareb, but um, it seems to me we have presented to us perfectly the next stage of the Gothmog-Sauron debate, right? The season four version of that. Gothmog from the beginning is advocating, you know, so Mithros has been rescued, this like ginormous eagle came, right, and helped to rescue him. And, you know, so now what do we do, right? Now what, and then the sun has come out and the orcs don't even want to go outside. What do we do? Right. Um, what do we do now? Sauron's answer to what do we do now is the catch and release program. He's like, okay, let's, we need more information, right? We need to figure out like what's, we need to, 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 to figure out whether clearly there's going to be issues here, right? We need to find where the, where the, the, the cracks are in the relationships among the elves. We need to figure out how we can widen those. Uh, we need both espionage and, uh, uh, and infiltration. Um, this is our next move. That's Sauron's answer, right? Gothmog's answer is we need to build up our armies and we need to smash them, right? Um, and the like the whole volcanic ash cloud cover thing can be Gothmog's uh, you know, like Sauron could be like, okay, genius, the orcs don't even want to go outside, what do we do? And Gothmog's like, cloud cover, how hard is that, right? Let's recreate, let's cover, you know, Beleriand uh, in a second darkness like it was before, except even better because it will blot out even the stupid stars this time, right? And then the orcs will be able to attack and maybe Gothmog believes, Right. Remember, the elves are called the Eldar. They're the children of the stars. Maybe he has some kind of theory that just as the orcs are weakened by the sun, the elves are strengthened by the stars, right? So we can do a, we, you know, we'll have the advantage, obviously, if we're fighting under a darkness of our own creation, right? Where the stars are not only the sun, but also the stars totally obliterated. Um, uh, 
yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So I, I'm I'm thinking that that's Gothmog's initiative, and it's not a stupid plan, right? That is not a stupid plan. Um, they still have not made. I mean, you know, if Sauron is the one arguing against it, he has arguments, right? Like, look how they kicked our butts on the field the first time. Do you not remember this, right? This is not going to go well. And Gothmog being like, hey, that was that was only a trial of our strength. And besides, there, you know, there there can be some. There has to be some other upgrades. The cloud cover is one good upgrade. Um, uh, you know, maybe they're like better armed now. You know, Bulldog can speak up and be like, no, man, we're not going to take that a second time. Um, they can just have increased their numbers, right? We have three times as many orcs now as we did before. Um, uh, so that's kind of my thought. Um, but Sauron is going to persist in the catch and release program. This means I think that that has to start prior to the Dagor Aglareb. That is the capturing. Anyway, because remember the catch and release program, it's not like a moment, right? It's a process. First, you've got to kidnap folks. Then you've got to work on them, right? Somehow or other. And remember, Sauron has experience for this. with this. Remember Sauron and his proto-orcs, right? He still has his methods uh, of trying to break them down. And of course, now Morgoth wants to take a deliberate hand in that as well. Um, uh, <clears throat> so Marie, yes, I'm thinking after the Merith Adarthad. So the Merith Adarthad, the, the, you know, the, the feast of, uh, of reconciliation, sort of quasi-reconciliation that they're going to have. Um, I think, Marie, that the way that we want to sequence it um, is up until that point, up up and through the Marath Adarthad, Sauron is still is still fact finding, right? He's still gaining intel on the elves. Um, so the focus is on Thurin Gwethil and uh, uh, personally, and like Sauron's spy network in general um, of like other vampires, presumably, right? Um, so so we have. Sauron gaining information. So he comes after the Marath Adarthad is when he is when he really like pitches his plan. Right. Okay, this is what I've learned. There's something dodgy going on. Maybe he's discovered about the Kinslaying. Maybe he knows about the Kinslaying. I think he does know. By the Marath Adarthad, I think Sauron knows about the Kinslaying. Right. And so yeah. he, he comes to Morgoth and he's like, all right, I got this whole plan. We're going to kidnap folks. We're going to release them. We're going we're to either release them or we're going to let them escape, depending on, you know, how that pans out with, you know, in, in, in the case of the individual person. Uh, and uh, we're going to use them to sow dissension. We're going to spread news about the 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 um, the kinslaying. This is going to be awesome. We're going to get them at, you know, at each other's throats and distrusting each other. And this is a golden opportunity for us. Um, and, uh, and that's all, and that's all good. So Marie, yes, he and Thorin Gwethel can be spies at the Marath Adarthad disguised as elves. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Both of them should be there. We can have some like, you know, back room scenes of the two of them, uh, kind of comparing notes and, 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 you know, going after folks on a, in a spying basis. Right. Um, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> okay. So the Dagor Aglareb happens anyway, even after Sauron has begun. So he's begun to do his capturing thing, but Morgoth is impatient, right? Morgoth is impatient and he's still ticked off. So he goes along with Gothmog. 
right? He encourages Sauron too. This is not a diss of Sauron, right? Um, continue your long-term thing. But you know what? Let's try this out. Like, why bother doing this whole convoluted long-term thing if in the end it turns out we can just crush them like bugs, right? Crushing like bugs should be plan A because anyway, I'm ticked off and I really want to do some crushing, right? Uh, so he goes along with Gothmog while encouraging Sauron to continue the thing, right? So Sauron's already begun his thing. I think the first disappearances, the first elves captured should happen prior to the Dagor Aglareb. Note about the infiltration from the north. You know, when the orcs are sent down along the coast coming in from the north to try to uh, uh, to try to um, come at Hithlum from the north and are foiled. Part of me wants to incorporate that into the Dagor Aglareb. Let me just say this. Unless we have good reason to make another incident of that, a separate incident of that, which we might. It, it would be fine. I'm not opposed to it. Um, but it would be kind of nice, actually, to have a little strategery involved in the Dagor Aglareb rather than just a, a kind of a, a boneheaded frontal assault. Um, uh, so, like, they send one... So the idea is... They send them around and then, you know, the uh, they're going to be coming in the back door while they, you know, so it's it's like, again, it's strategy, right? Um, uh, sensible, intelligent and cunning strategy. Um, but. Uh, yeah, Marie says the main reason to put it later would be to let Kyrdan show support for the Noldor after the Kinslaying reveal. That's a great point, because um, Kyrdan, of course, is going to be heavily involved in the thwarting of that uh, northern thing. And in fact, Marie I really kind of like having Kyrdan's arrival being like fairly you catastrophic, right? Um, and that you catastrophe, that little mini you catastrophe of Kyrdan's arrival uh, to help to thwart the northern branch of orcs would be especially powerful if it were in fact also an act of forgiveness on Kyrdan's part, right? Um, so I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Um, but... Uh, um, but actually, hang on, let me hold on to that because I do. I just had one other thought about the Northern Orcs. Hang on, hang on. We'll come back to that in a second. Well, not a second, a couple minutes. So, all right. Um, back to the capture and release program then. Uh, and here I want to begin addressing the question of whom is going to be made captive. Now, Hakan makes a really good point that it's not like the elf lords are going to be super vulnerable or that it's like we can just have them vanishing without anybody noticing. And, you know, like it's going to be a big deal. Um, Hakan, I'm not sure that we can't have them traveling alone. I mean, that does kind of seem to happen. Um I mean, think about Aeol running into Kelegorm and Carinthir, right? And, you know, uh, when he's chasing Maeglin and Arathel. And they're, they're kind of on their own, right? Uh, I mean, not alone necessarily, but meeting an elf lord wandering in the woods by himself actually kind of does seem to happen with some regularity, right? Finrod and the men, uh, Baron running into Kelgorm and Kurifin. I know that's a separate example because they've just been personally banished. But still, anyway, it, it, it can happen. It does happen. But... Um, uh, so, um, 
Yeah, Marie just pointed out we, we don't necessarily want too many battles in the middle of the long piece, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, if we have a continuous series of battles, like that would be three. If we separate them, that's three battles that we're having in season four, which is not going to make it look very much like a long piece now, is it? Uh, but anyhow, um, uh, okay. But people, capturing people. The reason we have a list of names suggested in the first place is, as I, as I already said, we, we don't want to just have red shirts. Um, we need to have, if we want people to invest in this, they need to be invested in the elves who are captured, right? This, in order for that story to be really powerful, we have to care about the individual elves. They can't just be faceless, nameless. Well, not faceless, but like they can't be nameless extras, right? I also don't want to make up any more elves than we need to. We are, you know, one of the continual overarching challenges of this entire project is there are enough bloody names in the Silmarillion already, right? We can't, uh, we, we, we can't just be wantonly making up new people simply because, uh, there are, um, there's already more than people uh, keep track of, and we are already going out of our way to bring back a lot of characters that Tolkien cut from the Silmarillion, right? Like Rog. Um, so, uh, the one way, therefore, to kind of confront both of those challenges at the same time is to have characters who have already been named, who have already appeared in the context of the cast that we've already introduced, um, have some of them be captured. Um, at the very least, people who are going to be important later, right, uh, have this be their introduction so that we're not adding to the total cast of characters uh, over the course of the whole film film project by doing it. Um, so, um, here's... Um, Before we think about actual characters, I want to suggest this. Um, I want to suggest functions. Who, who, who do we need? We don't need every single elf capt captured to be named. We can have some red shirts. Like, that's okay. We don't have to have, like, this whole big cast of named elf lords in Sauron's dungeon. When we're having Sauron's dungeon scenes, right, there can be, most of the elves can be extras um, who aren't named. We just need to have, the, the ones who are going to play significant roles, we will want to be significant, right? Um, uh, of those significant ones, of those, so, so, so the next question, therefore, is what are the roles, Right? There are a couple things that we need to demonstrate about the. Um, there are a couple things that we need to demonstrate about the, um, the whole business, right? What we need to demonstrate is there are some of the. the we, we need to demonstrate the outcomes, right? There are a few different outcomes for the elves that are captured by Sauron. One outcome is they remain captured and die in captivity, right? So there's a portion of the population to whom that happens and who are like enslaved and put to work in the mines, right? Uh, we know, as we know, the 
the Noldor are, especially when they are captured by Morgoth. So some who live out their lives and die wretchedly as slaves. That needs to be one part of the population. Second part of the population, those who actually escape under their own power. Because there are some who do escape. So we need to have an actual honest escapee from captivity. Another outcome are... And I would, I would divide, I would subdivide this into two. <clears throat> Those who are released on purpose because they are made into agents of the enemy, <clears throat> having undergone the spell of bottomless dread, having been uh, exposed to the domination or subjected to the domination of Sauron and Morgoth. Now, those I would subcategorize into two groups. I would think that there would be some who are so dominated that they are essentially willing uh, stooges. Like, they, they, they do conscious actions that are in service to the enemy because their wills have been broken. Um, and so they become active... Um, they, they become active... Uh, uh, active agents. But there, I think, should be another set who are still under the influence but, like, don't know it, right? Um, who are not collaborators, who have not, co have not been, been, been corrupted to the point where they are actively collaborators, um, but who are still, like, sources of information, who still can be... Um, so, like, for instance, this is a, a, a random idea, but one way that we could play this particular thing that I'm thinking of Imagine someone who is placed under the spell of bottomless dread, right? They are dominated by Sauron uh, and Morgoth, and they're released, right? A, an escape is staged. They probably believe that they've escaped, right? I mean, I'm thinking of something... Uh, hypnosis is almost always hokey, but something kind of like hypnosis, right? So here's what I'm imagining... The person, they still, like, that the, the, Morgoth still has his claws in the brain of this elf, right? But he or she believes that they've escaped on, on their own volition. They go back to their families and are, are welcomed back and trusted. And they believe that, you know, and they're, they're just, they've been through a lot, right? They're still traumatized. Uh, but, um, but everyone's really happy to have them back, right? But like Sauron or Thuringwethil can still like show up at their window at night, look them in the eyes and get them to like, tell them everything that they've learned. Right. You know, so they, they still will be served. They'll be like their spies and sources of information, not willing spies. Right. But again, that the enemy still has a hold on them, which the, which the, the good guys don't suspect. Um, see the kind of thing that I'm talking about in Hakan Yai, I admit to being influenced by Dracula here, but um, uh, but yeah. That's, I think a, that's this, the kind of thing. I think this is what the, the text implies as well. I do too. Uh, uh, you know, that, it, that, it, that not every single person who gets captured and released is, is, a, is, a, is a witting uh, spy. Right. And that, that's, that's, what makes it, that's what makes it all the more tragic, right? Exactly. You know, but there, there's actually a lot of people who get captured and then, um, and then maybe escape, uh, and they get treated just as badly because nobody knows for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so we have lots of suspicion, right? Lots of doubt. Um, we have people who have, you know, I would vote for at least one kind of tragic character who escape, who resists Sauron, escapes um, by his or her own will and gets back home to be like, you know, outcast and distrusted and, and, uh, you know, and eventually, you know, leaves, uh, and, you know, and, 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 and goes off like miserable and distrusted into the wilderness. Like that's the kind of situation that we are told happens. Um, you know, we're Tolkien says that in one sentence, but it's a very evocative sentence, right? That, that invites us to imagine the uncertainty, doubt, and tragedy of, uh, of that time. Um, so, um, yeah, and Marie, I agree. We have some, uh, we have an opportunity to show some of this with Gwyndor in Nargothrond. I agree. Um, I also agree that we can kind of play the long game on this. We don't have to do everything with the catch and release program in season four. Um, Gwyndor though is a long time in the future. I would, I would want to establish, um, by the time we get to Gwyndor in the Turin story, I think Gwyndor should be, we should have a precedent in mind, right? Gwyndor's treatment in Nargothrond should not be to us an illustration of what can happen. It should be a recollection of tragedies that we've already seen. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it is super far in the future. Um, uh, but yeah, 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 no, exactly. That's, 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 that's just what we'll see with Gwyndor. Um, the reason I would like to have some of these, uh, tragic situations at work here is that of course it fits all very well into our themes right the suspicions about the kinslaying and what to do and the you know opportunities for reconciliation non-reconciliation forgiveness and non-forgiveness right um uh are all going to be really uh um really strong here um uh so the question then becomes not just which elves do we want captured. We need to think of them in terms of these specific roles. Whom do we want? Which of these roles do we need to play out? And how? And whom do we want them to be played out by? I think we need at least four total. I get well, at least one in each of those four categories I was describing. Uh, person who is enslaved and dies in captivity, person who escapes of his own volition, person who is the unwilling stooge uh, of Sauron, and the person who is uh, dominated and becomes an actual traitor. Now, Marie uh, was suggesting that um, uh, the only willing betrayal should be Gorlam the Unhappy and Maeglin. I do think that they should be a different category. Here's what I'm thinking. Let me let me let me let me get into that a little bit more. The spell of bottomless dread. I think we have a really fun opportunity with the spell of bottomless dread, right? Because with the spell of bottomless dread, what we have the opportunity to do is introduce the theme of the domination of other wills. In fact, I would quite like Sauron to be 
so Sauron is capturing people and he's like torturing folks and, you know, t- uh, t- taking, you know, sort of uh, as I forget who it was. Was it uh, Nick who was saying it's like the super secret necromantic uh, orc project with without the necromancy? Right. Um, yeah, exactly. So he, his methods are kind of comparatively mundane. Right. And then Morgoth says, no, 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 bring me one. Right. And so he brings one of his captive Noldo or whatever uh, to to uh, to to Morgoth and Morgoth is like whammy. Right. And he exerts some of his spirit. Remember, that's a theme we need to we need to show Morgoth weakening himself. Right. And putting forth his spirit in order to. So he puts forth his spirit in order to absolutely dominate the will of this elf. And Sauron is watching this and taking notes like that's actually kind of awesome. Right. Uh, So to have to have the ultimate plan, which is going to bear fruit in the one ring itself, in the rings of power and the forging of the one ring and the use of the one ring as an instrument, because Sauron doesn't quite have the juice that Morgoth has. Right. So uh, the ring of power is the is the way he's going to be channeling his own spirit in a similar way to what Morgoth does in the spell of bottomless dread. Right. In order to bring somebody completely under his dominion. Uh, then, okay, so so he so Sauron sees this and he's like, okay, that's kind of awesome. Like, note to self, I, I want to see if I can develop this technique uh, uh, on my own, right? So, I, planting the seeds, long game, right? Playing the long game with Sauron here, um, having Sauron learning this technique uh, about the domination of other wills. <clears throat> now, here's the immediate payoff. Right? The immediate payoff is that the spell of bottomless dread and the victims of the spell of bottomless dread, we we can talk about those in ways which automatically, which already kind of make sense, right? That is to say, we can establish a parallel between those who are victimized by Morgoth and Sauron through the spell of bottomless dread and those who are victimized by the rings of power, Right? So we can be looking at not exactly Gollum parallels because it's not this, exactly the same as Gollum, but we can th- so, so here's one of the things that I'm imagining. One of the things I'm imagining is that we have a Frodo character essentially in the sense of somebody who resists the, the domination at least in part, right? Maybe entirely, but who is broken by it. Who, is, who, who sails off into the West because they can't take They need healing. And they can't get it here, right? Uh, they can't sail off into the West yet. But again, we see, with, like, that we have this problem, right? We, we introduce this, what we're going to see with the ring bearers later on. Um, so, yeah, I do want to show Morgoth, like, breaking people, basically. To show people broken and needing help. Somebody in a situation again, even a even a even a. You're, a, a you're saying, person. and you're saying broken, but not necessarily enslaved. Yeah, mentally broken, spiritually broken. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <clears throat> um, so, um, what I'm imagining. So, uh, Marie, coming back to the point you were making about Gorlim and uh, Myglin, the difference with Gorlim and Myglin is that they simply choose. Myglin is going to like, have the whammy put on him and stuff, but Gorlim and Myglim are more complicit, right? 
what I am imagining with the traitor character, you know, I, I said I wanted two categories of elves who are under the spell of bottomless dread the one who like kind of don't even realize it right and they're just kind of made into spies without even realizing it the other half being or the other category rather they don't have to be half they can be quite rare are people who are actually like worked on to be traitors um the shape that i'm kind of thinking uh is more of a more of a like a um like a like a, a Boromir shape. Like I'd like somebody to, to repent at the end, to be freed in the end, but to die ultimately like Boromir. Um, Mm -hmm. somebody who is just, who is just broken. Um, uh, and, um, made against their will to, to do again. So they're not like Mygland. They're not like Gorlam because they are, they kind of don't know what they're doing, but the difference between them and the spies is that they are committing active actions. So here's the angle that I was thinking on with this is the invasion of the Northern Orcs. What if one of the elves of Hithlam or an elf in Hithlam, or anyway, somebody up there, like there is a betrayal involved in that. Somehow the attack is concealed or something by I'm not sure exactly how the logistics work but that attack from the north almost succeeds because of the actions of an elf who is dominated um uh and but that elf like is discovered and repents and uh, uh and you know and so it doesn't it doesn't come off uh, in the end, but we show how this kind of thing is possible. Um, she wouldn't have a choice. Now, by the way, I'm saying she because I'm thinking this would be a really good role for one of the wives that we haven't given a role to. Um, hmm. uh, and the reason I, the primary reason I nominate one of the wives is that um, I think it's evocative for one. Um, I think it's, uh, we, we, most of the wives don't have a job job in the sense of like, there is a thing, there is a, there is a, a, a role in the narrative that is slotted for them to play. Right. Um, uh, like Rog has a job, right? Rog needs to die in the fall of Gondolin. So whatever happens to Rog, it needs to be in the, he needs to be able to do his job. Right. Ecthelion has a big job. He's got to die in the fall of Gondolin, help establish Gondolin and kill Gothmog. Right. So he, he's got jobs. Uh, Oradreth has a job, several jobs. Right. Um, most of the wives don't have jobs. They don't have roles in the narrative. We don't know what ultimately becomes of most of them. Very few of their ultimate destinies are spelled out. Uh, so Eldolante Hakan is kind of what I'm thinking of here. Um, she was my going to be my suggestion uh, for the one who is captured and totally broken. Um, and, you know, how we want to play, I'm open to suggestions, how we want to play it. Do we show her, um, like, betraying the, again, I, the logistics, I'm not really sure of yet. It would have to be, it would depend on how we wanted to play out the attack. But 
Again, the, the kind of thing I'm thinking of is somebody who is going to like open the gates from the inside when the orcs are attacking. Essentially, that's kind of that's that's the species of role I'm thinking of her playing as a traitor here. And we could choose it a couple different ways, right? We could have her, you know, acting like a sleepwalker when she's doing that, right? So she's been coded with these instructions of what to do, but we see her will not actively involved. Um, we could just play her as more deranged, right? She could be, she could be just ill. Uh, I mean, she could be raving um, when she is found, right? And, and, and she's just being cared for. Um, And, uh, you know, the acting out of the act of betrayal is, can be just like integrated with her disordered behavior, right? Because again, what she's doing is she's acting out on instructions, which she can't resist, um, uh, because her mind and spirit has been broken. Um, but, uh, but, but it's not exactly like a sleepwalking thing either. You know, she can be kind of talking crazy all along. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Marie, I do like the idea of, Eldelate as the she could be the the exemplar of the spell of bottomless dread to have her captured by Sauron, um, resist Sauron. So we show she, she, she's not just weak, right? She's not just a, uh, a a wuss. She she resists the torture of Sauron, and then she um, is taken before Morgoth, and the spell of bottomless dread is laid. We see him personally. She could be the one whom we see him laying the whammy on and exerting his own will and power over her. And she's just broken. Right. And then he's like, let her go. Right. She'll be fine. Um, and so then we can see sort of the effect, uh, on her. And so, yeah, then when she finishes, when she completes the, the instruction, I don't know if the madness lifts, she might have a lucid moment. Um, uh, I, I I would like to have a Boromir kind of moment with her. I would like to show that her own will still exists underneath and still is set against the enemy. She's not complicit. Um, but she also... I don't think we have her permanently healed. I think she's, like, permanently messed up. Um, you know, and she might... You know, she might go change from instead of the more kind of manic state that she would have been in prior to the act of betrayal, she might go into a much more kind of catatonic. Maybe she, maybe she never speaks again or something after that. Or, or, but I mean, she should be broken. Um, that should definitely be tragic. Um, uh, and then, yeah, Marie, we'll have her, we'll have her, we'll have her die later on. Um, uh, maybe we can have her accomplish something good before she dies, uh, you know, die in the act of accomplishing something good. I don't, I don't know. Um, we can think about that. That sounds to me maybe like a season five question, um, a Dagor Bragalak thing perhaps. Um, but, um, but anyway, that's the, uh, and I know like this might seem kind of heavy, this sort of sequence that I'm describing, but I, this is heavy stuff, right? I mean, we really want to convey the spell of bottomless dread uh, and what this means, right? And the kind of impact. And and it's a good setup for the Ring of Power stuff, right? One of the problems that I think a lot... The people who have a problem with what happens to Frodo at the end of his quest, the people who, have a, who are disturbed by Frodo giving in to the temptation of the ring in the end, of the fact that Frodo has failed ultimately right to succeed you know he does not succeed in his quest 
in general, I would say the people who are disappointed or bothered by that are not understanding what happened to him, right? They are not getting. And so I think this is a, a really good opportunity to show like, no, this is what happens when the whammy is laid on you. This is what Frodo was resisting all that time, right? Something like this. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, Brie, I agree. We're not going to, we do want to make sure we avoid having all the male elves die as in battle as martyrs and the women dying from being tortured and stripped of their will like Calabrian. Yes. We don't want to make that too persistent a pattern. Um, I agree. Um, but, uh, I, I agree, but I don't, I, I don't, I, I, but at the same time, Brie, I want to have at least one other elf woman do it. Right. I mean, that is when it happens to Calabrian, it should look familiar. Right. Um, that's how Tolkien stories work. We get the same story repeated again and again. Right. So, um, so we should get stuff. Ooh, Hakan was just suggesting she could kill Tavildo. We do need to kill off Tavildo at some point, right? And we don't have, uh, we have not, we have no precedent anymore, you know, uh, post Tale of Tenubio for exactly that happens, unless we want to give it to Hurin, or sorry, not Hurin, I mean uh, Huan, the hound. Um, but um, anyway, but no, Bri, I absolutely agree. It, that would be a little too tropey, I think. What, like dogs, dogs versus cats. cats? You know, well, <laughs> yeah, that was the trope uh, in the tale of Tenubio, right? And that's why from then on, dogs and cats that's, have not gotten Oh, that's wrong. true. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the story. But, but yeah, no, I agree. That's not necessarily the kind of story we want to. Tolkien moved away from that kind of allegory, and I think that we can move away from that too. Um, but anyhow, okay. So, uh, so that's fine. I, I don't, I don't, I, I think. We're going to want, <clears throat> since we are doing so much more with so many of the minor characters, we're going to need, like, more awesomeness to go around, right? So uh, we can definitely save Tavildo for the right moment. I don't even know when that's that's going to happen. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think we can, I think we can, we can do better. Okay, so if El Delate is... Um, is in if 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 people are okay with putting Elder Latte in that role, we still need at least three others. We need one elf who vanishes and never is seen again, right? Who is gonna like? We will see uh, at some point, uh, as a side note in one of the villain scenes, working as a slave in Angband, right? So we need somebody to be a slave in Angband. Um, we need somebody to escape under his or her own power, uh, and not, and be unbroken. And we need somebody to be the unwitting spy. Um, so the sort of half-broken person. And Hakan, it is not going to be Elmo. Uh, no, no, it is not going to be Elmo. Um, uh, I like Hakan. <laughs> He's a guy after my own heart. True. So Elmo and Bobway yeah. together. Yeah. Um, yeah, Elmo. <laughs> sure, we could always bring in Bobway for this. Yeah, what about Bobway? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That's right. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, I I think I mean just to to and you know, Bree, thinking about what you were just saying uh, and wanting to 
be careful not to make uh, not to 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 have the appearance of of, you know, simply working with gender stereotypes, having a man uh, as the one who's the unconscious uh, spy, you know, so, you know, have one elf man and one elf woman have the whammy laid on them makes sense. Uh, So who could that be? Who's the unconscious spy? Um, so here's, here's my problem with our list of names. I liked El Delante. Mithros, I mean, yeah, he was captured, but his story's already been told, right? So he's not part of this particular, he's not part of the catch and release program. Mithros is not going to be captured again. That is not going to happen, right? So, um, uh, yeah. So Mithros is a, is, 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 is a burning flame. No way. Um, Gelmir and Gwyndor, sure, but they're in the future. They're too far down in the future. Gelmir can, I mean, he's going to be a prisoner and he's going to stay a prisoner. We could set him up now. It's pretty far, really far in advance. I'd be afraid that it's too far to have that payoff be, I mean, if Gelmir vanishes in season four and we next see him in season, I don't even know what, eight maybe four years from now like he's dragged out and dismembered in front of the army to you know kick off the near knife or no idea that i that's that's uh too early hakan i am not only talking about nolder i'm i'm happy that we we should have at least one of our four be be uh uh, uh be be cinder absolutely um so so you know, again, Gelmir is Gelmir and Gwyndor are attempting. Gwyndor, obviously, not yet because he's 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 good until the near night. He's he's got a couple important jobs right later on down the road. Um, Gelmir, I think, is too soon. We only want to introduce him when we introduce Gwyndor, and I think it's too soon for Gwyndor. Um, uh, Penlod. <sighs> okay, I'm going to take some convincing that we need to. To me, introducing Penlod is exactly the same thing as just in, like introducing a totally other random character. Like, remember, I said we don't want to add to the cast of characters any more than we need be. Penlod is an addition to the cast of characters. He's even in the Fall of Gondolin, he's obscure. Okay, like he is of the listed Lords of Gondolin, he's one of the most insignificant and obscure. Like, you know, and we don't need him. We have people like to be captains of Gondolin. We have enough people to do that job, right? We've got Ecthelion, we've got Gorfindel, right? Gorfindel and Ecthelion by themselves are almost enough. I'm adding Rog because I think Rog is awesome. So if we've got Rog, Ecthelion, and Gorfindel, and Maeglin, and Tuor, right? We've got enough captains in Gondolin. We don't need another random Gondolindrim lord, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, yeah. As, as Nick says, I can say that the one place we don't need more people is Gondolin. Exactly. So... So yeah, so Penlod I think is just again he's he is he is like uh functionally adding a brand new character. Uh Gimli the Blind Ditto. Like yes, there is a, a character who's named Gimli. He's a fun trivia question because his name is Gimli, but if we're going to say that guy Gimli who is not going to be named Gimli, who is he? Nobody. He's a he's a like a completely unconnected character whom we've never met before and so therefore doesn't help us as far as keeping our cast of characters down. So this narrows us down only to Rog, Ecthelion, and Oradreth in this list. Ecthelion, I agree with the with the general uh, uh, acclaim or declamation that he shouldn't be. I agree. 
Ecthelion has enough jobs. He's going to be busy being awesome in Gondolin. He doesn't need to be part of the catch and release program. Um, uh, uh, let me say a controversial thing and say I would put Glorfindel in the catch and release program before I put Ecthelion in the catch and release program, honestly. Um, uh, but uh, let's see. Uh, Let's see how the dis- what the discussion board thinks of that suggestion. Um, Rog. So, I like Rog, but if Rog is going to be in it, Rog is going to be... I think the only thing I can see Rog fitting is the one who resists and escapes. Rog is going to die in the fall of Gondolin, like, spitting out his last defiance at Morgoth. He's going to be, like, dying, leading a charge, which, like, helps to allow others to escape. You know, he's going to... The role that I see him playing in our version of The Fall of Gondolin when we get there, you know, in only 10 years or so, will be... um, He's going to, like, lead the last desperate offensive which is uh, in which everyone is going to die who goes on it, but which is going to enable Tuor and Idril to escape with Glorfindel and the rest of the refugees, right? So he's going to die so that only, uh, so that other people can escape. He's going to die self-sacrificially. Um, Ecthelion, of course, is going to die too, but he's going to die taking out Gothmog. Um, so those are their two jobs, and their two jobs are different, right? Ecthelion dies in defense. Um, he helps to, to uh, stave off the attack by killing Gothmog, which is going to be very significant, right, to the attacking armies. Um, and Rog is going to die uh, helping to cover the retreat. Again, always that this is, this is, that, that's my initial idea. Rog can't be broken, therefore. He, he, I, I don't think he can be the spy, um, because that would make him... I mean, who would trust him as captain in Gondolin, right? It's gonna... I don't want any shadow to be over him in Gondolin, really. Um, so he could be the defiant one. He could be one who escapes. Um, that's really the only role that's left for him. And I'd be okay with that. Um, uh, you know, he could be... We could even have on the field of Gondolin him meeting again one of the bad guys that he knew as a prisoner, right? Um, so there could be some really cool payoff, actually, to have Rog having seen the inside of Angband before uh, and having escaped. Um, uh, that could lead to some really nifty uh, uh, battlefield scenes. Um, so, um, so I would be I would be down with that. Uh, Oradreth. I can see the temptation to name Oradreth as one, to include Oradreth here. On the one hand, hey, it gives Oradreth a distinction other than being a wuss, and it explains the wussitude, right? And I, and I get that. Like, why is Oradreth so namby-pamby and, and unassertive? Because he's scarred by his experience in Angband would be the answer then. And that's not a bad story. I mean, I kind of like that. Um, here's what I don't like about that, though. What I don't like about that is that nobody else seems to be aware of that. Like, surely somebody, like one of his brothers or somebody, would have been like, you know, Oradreth has PTSD. Maybe we should not put him in charge. Maybe that's not a good idea either for him or anybody else, right? Um, Like, surely somebody would at some point over the centuries figure out that it's doing nobody, him least of all, any favors to, like, 
keep him in charge, right? So I, having everybody be either oblivious to that or, um, you know, too spineless themselves. To, and I just, I, I, it, that feels to me uncomfortable, you know, um, because he is going to have a significant leadership role down the road. And, you know, how does he get there from this? Um, now, Julie uh, makes the perfectly good point. <laughs> she says, are there any Noldor who don't have PTSD? Okay, good point, given. You know, granted, between the Helcaraxa and the Kinslaying and everything else, um, you know, there's plenty of that going around. Um, uh, but, yeah, Marie, exactly. Finrod putting him in charge of the Tower of Minas Tirith is the thing that seems to me hardest. Like, okay, you know, my, you know, I, 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 Oradreth has been, you know, he's been deeply wounded by what happened to him, right? So let's put him on the front lines. Let's put him in charge of the of the frontier fortress. Like, you know, come on. That's just mean. Uh, who would do that? Um, it's either mean or short-sighted, like really short-sighted. So um, besides which, if we only have four elves playing the four roles that I was describing... If Rog is the defiant one and uh, El Delante is the totally broken, uh, uh, sort of insane, quasi-insane, um, certainly emotionally and mentally unstable uh, traitor, then the only two roles left available are he who langu- you know, he or she who languishes in uh, Angman forever, which is obviously not Oradreth, which leaves Oradreth only possible for the um, inadvertent spy. And we can't have that be Ordreth, right? I mean, if he's been passing information to the enemy, there's no way anyone's going to put him in charge of the Frontier Fortress when that happens, right? So, um, yeah, I just, um, in in although I I do kind of like the uh, giving a backstory to Ordreth's apparent diffidence, right, and weakness and uh, indecisiveness. <clears throat> And I do think that we could certainly make that fit with a kind of the PTSD of a of a of a former prisoner. I I, I can't see how we can make it work unless we're going to have more than the four, because he can't fill that role. Which means we don't have a candidate for that role. We need we need a candidate, and we need a Sindar, don't we? We need one of the one of the Sindar. Um, do we have any do we have any superfluous Sindar that we can use for this? And by superfluous, I mean who don't Caliborn. have other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Mind blown. I like that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no, we can't. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I was kidding. But I just you said superfluous Sindar. I immediately thought of Caliborn. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Um. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Um. Hey. Okay. No wait. I love this. Um. Okay. So Nick is suggesting maybe a use for Kelborn siblings. We've already got a Kelborn oh. sibling. We got Kelborn. Yeah. We 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 brought in a sister for Kelborn, who is the head of the Green Elves. <sighs> non-leader of the green elves in Alciria, the spokesperson for 
uh, the democratically appointed spokesperson uh, for the uh, 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 anti-syndicalist commune that is the Green Elves of Osiria. And um, <laughs> uh, she will be their executive officer of the week. Um, uh, now we had Hakan Kelleborn doesn't have a dad. <laughs> Remember we had, we, he was, uh, he's Aboriginal. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, he is. Yes. Okay. All right. So hang on. Right. Galathil, that was his name. Thank you, Marie. I couldn't remember the name of, uh, uh, no, didn't. And, but didn't we make it a sister? Didn't we, didn't we gender switch Kelleborn's sibling? Pretty sure we did. Right. Oh, we did. In fact, now that you're mentioning it, it seems like. I'm pretty sure that we did. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. So yeah. So what? So that's fine. So we have. We 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 don't need like Calborn's family to be distributed all over. You know, Balerian like the, you know, the grandchildren of Queen Victoria or something like that. So, um, <laughs> let's. Uh, wait. No, I, Marie. That was the perfect suggestion. I love. And first of all, Hakan suggested Dairon, which has potential, by the way. Oh yeah. You know, to give to him a little bit of interest. But see, I, no, I think. I think that Dairon, I would prefer to have Dairon's innocence only shattered by Baron, basically. Uh, you know, I think that Dairon should be, you know, I, 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 I would kind of rather keep Dairon as like the, you know, the, the, the wide-eyed, blue-eyed boy until we get to the Baron story. Um, so, um, yeah, and Marie asks, does he even leave Dory at the end? I'm not even sure he's going to have the opportunity to, to be captured. Um but uh, but no, I, Marie's suggestion I think is the perfect one, uh, uh, and her suggestion was, uh, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce. I've never been sure how to pronounce this. Um, uh, Anil, A N N A E L, which is the Elvish foster father of Tuor. So remember Tuor, um, in his youth, flees off into the countryside and is raised by gray elves, uh, right up there, uh, and before he flees again. Uh, and ends up meeting the Noldor and ending up going down to uh, Vinyamar eventually. Um, I think that's a perfect suggestion. We have a named uh, Grey Elf whom we can reuse later for his job, right? He will have the job of being Tuor's foster father. And I think it's perfect. Here's why I think it's perfect. Because the person who is in this role, the person who's going to be the inadvertent spy, like it's going to come out at some point, right? It's going to be discovered. Um, And... It's going to be super awkward for that person, right? Because other people are not going to trust him. There are, obviously, there are going to be some who are going to think that he is complicit, right? Who are not going to believe that he doesn't know. Um, so he's going to be proven to be a spy. And everyone else is going to be like, you traitor, right? Or at least some people are going to be like, you traitor. And some people are going to be like, well, may, may, wait, maybe there's some other explanation. He's going to be like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. Seriously, I've never done this. And then it's going to be proven to him that he's done this. And then he's going to be like, holy cow, I've done this, right? What's going on? Uh, so some people will think that he's just faking it was a traitor all along. Some people are going to have real pity for him. He's going to be really torn up about this. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm a traitor and I don't even know it. So Exactly, Marie. He's going to end up isolating himself from the other elves. So that's why he and a few others with him are going to end up up in Hithlum, right? Gray elves who have not been living there yet. So that's why we're going to get these Sindar who are detached from the other Sindar and living in... He's going to start off living in sort of semi-isolation, even a kind of personally imposed exile, 
right? Because one very logical conclusion to the whole, you know, holy cow, I have been a traitor and I didn't know it uh, phenomenon would be I'm going to remove myself from everybody so that this doesn't keep happening because I don't know. I don't I don't know how it started. Oh, yeah, OK, I do know how it started. I didn't know it was happening. I don't know how to stop it. Uh, so uh, I'm going to I'm going to leave. Right. And the other cool thing is that having him be a Sindar can give this is how. Through him, the kinslaying should be discovered. Because Anil can be an ally, like a close friend of Celeborn. And so he can be on the inside of the discovery of the kinslaying, right? He can be part of the uh, the, 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 the discovery of the kinslaying in Doriath. Um, and so it is through him that Sauron and through Sauron Morgoth learns of the kins of the of the details of the kinslaying. So that works really super well too to have that be one of the one of the Sindar. Um, we can have they're suspicious, right? They've heard rumors that something happened and they don't know what it is, and so they've been, of course, doing the logical thing and trying to torture torture Noldor to have them tell them, but that could have been on successful so far. Marie suggesting it could be a friend of Kierden. Yeah, that would work too. That would help us involve Kierden. Um Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um and we don't want to give Kelborn too many friends because we already have him being connected with Galadriel and we don't wanna we don't wanna have Anil hanging out with Galadriel and Kelborn as a third wheel. That would be awkward. Uh <laughs> so yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. I like that. Perfect candidate. Perfect candidate. Okay. Uh, I kept myself on mute so I didn't make any more Caliborn jokes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hakan is interested. Yeah, Hakan suggested Galdor of the Havens, which is interesting because we don't, he doesn't have, I mean, he has a job in that he has to show up at the Council of Elrond, right? But that's not a big job. Um, and there's a lot of water that's going to pass under that bridge between now and the Council of Elrond and the, the end of the Third Age, right? So, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Marie. So, escapee is Rog. Uh, and, and so Rog can be a good illustration of we can see in Ron can also perform the job of showing how Sauron is trying to torture him to tell him about the kinslaying. Right. Um, so he, so who's Rog? Rog is associated with, but I like this suggestion. This was a suggestion from the discussion board. I think that Rog is one of Fingon's guys. Right. And so he ends up in Gondolin after the near knife Arnoidiad. So like the, you know, the, 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 the scattered remnants of Fingon's army, many of them retreat with Turgon into Gondolin. And so Rog ends up in Gondolin there. But this is another reason why Rog is kind of even more kamikaze than the other Gondolin Drim, right? Because his lord has already been killed and uh, he, uh, you know, so he's basically saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help. He's trying to return the favor that the Gondolin Drim did in coming up and supporting them at, um, uh, at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, 
um, I, th I think that's all, uh, that's all good. Um, I like that dynamic separating him. So he's not just, you know, a, yet another random Gondolindrim Lord. He has a different backstory, not only the capturing, but even coming from elsewhere. And this also means he's not just part of the Gondolindrim. He doesn't go to Gondolin at the beginning, right? So we can involve Rog, uh, in the earlier battles, um, we can have Rog be there, you know, by Fingon or near Fingon anyway, when Fingon is, uh, uh, is killed in the, uh, in the near night. So, okay. Um, Marie's suggesting maybe, so we, we, we did name Galdor. We, we, we had Galdor as basically kind of an extra, he was a named Mariner back in season three when we had Kierden sailing around trying to figure out what was going on. Um, Marie saying we could have Galdor made captive and now and never escape and only be freed in the War of Wrath. He'd be super scarred. He would have a while to recover. Uh, he would have a while to recover, and we could see him choosing to stay with Celebrimbor, you know, after the War of Wrath. But yikes. <laughs> That's a lot. By the way, another thing that we're going to want, remember how when um, Luthien rescues Baron from Tol and Gaurhoth, um, other prisoners are set free? We're going to need a named person there, too, so we don't just have red shirts being set free. Um, we, need to have, we need to have a non-extra there, somebody to be like the spokesperson of the prisoners set free from Tall and Gaurhoth. So we need to figure out somebody for that. Not necessarily now, but it could be. It could be somebody who gets captured in this season and is not going to... Because that's not too far. That's, what, two years away, maybe? Right? Uh, so that's not too far in the... Um, exactly, Marie. Somebody playing the Gimli the Blind role. Exactly. Um, but again, I think that we could put somebody in, and it's going to depend whom, whom are we going to want him to be reporting to. It's going to be a Sindar, right? Because we want him to go back to Doriath after he's set free, and so therefore be the vehicle of telling Fingal and Melian about Baron and Luthien and what happened at Tol and Garhoth, right? So it should probably be a Sindar. Um, uh, it should probably be a Sindar. So we need another Sindar, another expendable Sindar. Wow, boy, that's going to be tough. We're running out of Sindar. Um, I have to start inventing soon. Yeah. Hey, I just want to check. So we're, we're we are in the villain section now, right? Yeah, we're still yeah we're still in the villain okay. section. Okay. So still we're, we're talking villain. about what we're supposed to. I just want to make sure about. we got to the villain section because I was just oh, like, yeah. no, we absolutely to the villains. We did start talking about the villains. Okay. Yeah, we absolutely right. did. Well, <laughs> I knew that the, the, the I. I was happy to start with the catch and release program because I knew this was going to be the biggest single topic in the villain section. And I was kind of guessing we'd probably spend the rest of the time talking about the catch and release program because this has the biggest implications for all the other plots. Um, the dragon plot subplot and the corruption of men subplot are both much more uh, uh, sort of encapsulated, you know, uh, isolated um, within the season. More independent. Exactly. Okay. So... Uh, Marie, that could be Galdor. So instead of having Galdor being held captive for like 10 seasons, he's only going to be held captive for two seasons. Okay. I guess we don't have Orifer yet, right? We can't use Orifer for anything like this. 
Who else do we have? Nope. Minor Sindar characters. Uh, don't have all that many. Sure, surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Galdor. Galdor's a good candidate, which means if we do have Galdor captured now and held prisoner for the next two years, he could be in that fourth role. So we could we could see him enslaved. Uh, except we would want to really show. Uh, I really want an old though, so that we can see them being put to the, you know put to work at the forges, um, like we know that Gwyndor is going to be later on. Um, so, but of course, if it's Galdor, why would Galdor run to Doriath instead of to Cirdan? when he's released from Tol and Garhoth. That's why I was kind of thinking it needed to be a Doriath person. But we have so few Doriath people. Um, unless, again, unless we start going down the future, you know, uh, you know, unless we start exploring Legolas's family tree, is what I'm saying. Um Yeah, I'm tempted to do it to Cyros just because I dislike Cyros, but I, I, that would mess with Cyros's character too. Cyros couldn't be the like fop that he would uh, that he would uh, that he's going to become. I, I can't I can't parse that. Orifer, though, yeah, he's my other suggestion. This could be the introduction introduction to Orifer's character. And he's going to have a long career. He's going to die in the battle at Daggerlad, the Battle of the Last Alliance. Hakan is suggesting Amdir, father of Emroth. Oh. So the problem with that suggestion, Hakan, is that brings up the Emroth question. Uh, and considering uh. that we still haven't decided even the Oradreth question yet... I am certainly not ready to decide the Amroth question. That is the question of Amroth's parentage. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of like Orifer. Yep, I'm liking Orifer as well. If he's imprisoned and set free from Tolengarhoth, we can have him scarred, but he's not been made uh, a tool, right? So he wouldn't necessarily be distrusted, and he could go on to a long career, eventually being becoming the Lord of the Elves of Mirkwood and dying in the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, having, you know... Legolas's grandfather have that kind of a direct tie to Baron and Luthien is kind of cool. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's 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 have that be Orifer. Orifer will be captured, um, and he'll be the one he'll be the one set free from Dolan Gaurhoth. So we could have him captured here in this season if we want to. We'll, we we can. We'll, this season, next season, that could happen. I'm kind of thinking since the capturing is going to be happening in this season, we should do that now. But we are going to want Enoldo to be made captive uh, and never seen again. 
Um, can we deploy another wife for this? Uh, I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting about that is, you know, she can be um, a particularly well-known artisan, right? A particularly well-known smith. And so... Um, she can have some kind of status with that. Uh, and so, so she would be sort of the one that inspires the, um, uh, you know, the Noldo chain gang project, right? That Morgoth, uh, you know, that maybe somebody is going to want to, you know, torture her further or just kill her or something like that. And Morgoth is like, no, 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 wait, I've got a better use for this one. Um, yes. Hmm. Well, let's leave this to the discussion board to suggest people. I want... I'll I'm thinking. I like it. Plenty. I'm thinking probably a woman, and I'm th de definitely a Noldo. Probably a woman. Make some suggestions here. You know, with Eldo Latte already in play, and and I was right, right? She's Angrod's wife. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, uh, I, the other reason I really like that is we had Angrod be the 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 really intemperate one. Like he's the one who is like most ticked off. Uh, so to have him have this other stroke uh, against him, right? For uh, in, this would so in part his discovery, his recovery, I should say, of his now mostly insane wife, right? Um, his mentally and spiritually broken wife is already enough to make to like help to explain and to fuel his intemperance right as he moves through this process um but then of course to see how he is then affected by her treachery and i mean there's um yeah maria i was thinking of a fanorian wife uh uh that was uh that was, i was gonna i was gonna suggest that too but anyway you guys can suggest something um uh if 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 you think another wife uh it could be a sister instead of a wife um uh you know, that'd be fine, too. Um, you know, a non-Arithel sister. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so, yeah, those will work. How and when are they captured? Um, I think that this has to be a stealth operation, right? This is part of... So, <clears throat> espionage is what Thurin Gwethil and um, Sauron do first stage two of their process should be kidnapping. And I'm thinking Tavildo for kidnapper in chief. Tavildo and his cats. That seems like a Tavildo-ish kind of thing to do, doesn't it? Um, Thorin Gwethel can help to oversee it, but she's going to be the, still primarily involved in spying, and she can be the one who is interacting with those who are released back, like people like um, Marty... Bo oh, uh, uh, Anil. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, exactly, Marie, the pouncing from hiding on travelers. Yeah, this seems like a Tevildo thing, right? Um, so let's have Tevildo in charge of the capturing. Uh, and then they can release them in various ways, depending on their depending on their degrees. Rog escapes. Um, to, and Rog's escape, of course, proves that it's possible so that we can believe it when Gwyndor escapes later on. Um, we have Eldolate, who will just be found. Um, and it can be after Rog's escape so that they can, like, Angrod can tell himself that she probably escaped, right? But maybe even there are people who are uncertain about that from the beginning. I don't know. Um, uh, Anil, uh will escape. We'll believe that he escaped, right? Um, so that he just looks like the Cinder in the Cinder version of Rog, right? Um, uh, until it's discovered that it, that's not quite the whole story. Uh, so I think that the first capturings should happen. Uh, Eldolate at least should be captured after the Marath Adarthad and before the Dagor Aglareb. So after the party, before the battle. Um, she's captured and the spell of bottomless, you know, the whammy is put on her so that we, we use her to introduce the whole whammy concept, right? And that that concept predates the Dagor Aglareb. So that project is happening. Um, we can maybe get uh, at least one other captured, right? Maybe the other, the the one who's not going to escape, the one who starts the, um, you know, the indentured servitude project, uh, because um, then we can show her role in uh, preparing for the battle, right? This, the enslaved Noldor, uh, there will be then a market in Angban for enslaved Noldor because we need to help create better war material, right? So um, uh, uh, even Gothmog and, and uh, Bulldog will be excited about this turn of events, right? Um, so I'm thinking maybe both of those two can be captured prior to the battle, the Dagor Aglareb. Um, Eldolate would have to be released. If we're going to do what I'm suggesting, combining the northern attack by the orcs with the Dagor Aglareb and have her... Uh, treacherous role or uh, treacherous uh, almost role um, be played out in somehow enabling the orcs from the north to attack either by concealing their presence or by uh, giving them a route in somehow to Hithlam uh, either uh, uh, literally or metaphorically opening gates for them um, obviously she needs to be released before the battle so so she sh should be first captured um, the per the perma slave should be the second one captured. Rog and um, Anil could be captured afterwards. That's but but not too far afterwards, right? Because we need to have them um, back in general population, you know, for a significant chunk of the latter part of the season. So that's all good. All right, good. I think we're done with the catch and release program. Any any final thoughts? Anything I've overlooked? I like the uh, I like the possibility of um, adding some treachery during the dock or uh, Aglareb. I think yeah. that'll be. I yeah, think I think, think that'll make it. You know, I, I like like I mean, those are all awesome battles. And as Tolkien fans, we 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 just sort of accept that they're exciting, but 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 oftentimes they don't have a ton of drama. It's just well, that oh, one especially. You know, yeah. 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 
Yeah, Morgoth just sends his forces out, and then the and they get wiped them. out, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. The whole the whole point of um, the whole point of the Dagor Aglareb is to like show the awesomeness of the Noldor and how the the orcs can't stand up to them, which is great in a one paragraph description in the text, right? Yeah. But to have a whole big, you know, sort of exciting sequence which just culminates in a totally one-sided stomping um, is not very interesting to see. Right. Uh, and I think could come across uh, as fairly disappointing or if we're not careful, even comical. Um, so, yeah, so we still need it to be, obviously we want it to be a resounding victory. All of the, the, the outlines remains, right. Um, Sauron attempts to attack them. The elves win handily. It's a massive defeat for the bad guys. And the lesson that they learn from that is we need something other than orcs, right? Uh, orcs unaided yep. are not going to be able to do the trick. But I think that we can accomplish that by having more than just one pitched battle, uh, one very lopsided pitched battle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, uh, so yeah, Dave, in fact, yeah, as, as, you're, as you're suggesting, by doing more this way, we make it much more because essentially the dagger Aglareb will prove they should have advantages, right? The more I'm uh-huh. thinking about it, the more I kind of like the idea of the treason essentially succeeding, right? The orcs are given a big advantage. They're let in the back door um, and yet still they lose and they lose yep. because Kierden, you catch you catastrophically shows up and attacks them from the side or from behind. Uh, and you know, there's lots of like heroic, events that occur and the elves wipe them all out right so so that basically the moral of the story for morgoth and the bad guys is even when everything goes right the orcs lost right you know this battle panned out pretty much exactly as we planned and we got stomped so it's back to the drawing board boys right that's clearly and you know what would be interesting i don't know how how to to portray this but but it, you know, in thinking about in thinking about a sequence of events like that, you have to think that Morgoth that that would leave Morgoth wondering, right? right. Like I, everything was set up for me to win, and yet all of these sort of you know all of these like heroic events happen, you know, you you catastrophes and whatnot. He has to leave him wondering if the Valar are meddling somehow. Yes, and it would also be a, a wonderful way to leave many of the elves in Beleriand highly overconfident. Right. And maybe yep. even some of the elves are wondering that, you know, maybe yes. some of the elves are saying like, see, you know, the Valar are with us, you know, that, uh, that we've not been forgotten. This is, um, Luvatar is looking out for us. Like they could draw that conclusion as well. And yeah, Morgoth could be, maybe we do have a, like a, a backstage discussion between Sauron and Morgoth being like, you don't, you don't think to, that, did that seem a little coincidental to you? You know, do you detect the hand of, uh, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could, I could see that coming up. Right. Uh, yep. Maybe in the context of one of their other, um, uh, one of their other things. In fact, I would see it as a lead in to the, to Hildorian. Um, when Sauron and Morgoth are discussing, the corruption of men, that would seem to be a very sensible moment to have that conversation, uh, to see them, Morgoth and Sauron, that is, thinking about the larger strategy, right? Uh, in their, uh, because Morgoth is not going to be losing sight of his ultimate conflict 
with the other Valar, right? He's not, um, uh, you know, the, the, the main, the conquest of Beleriand is not his goal, right? Uh, that is a very minor feature of his goal, a, a, a preliminary first step. Um, okay. We do not have time to talk about uh, the corruption of men in Hildorian. But so next time we will talk about Hildorian uh, and we will talk about, um, uh, we will talk about, uh, so we'll talk about Hildorian and we'll talk, what's the other thing? Um, oh, dragons. Yeah. So we'll talk about the dragons. We'll talk about Hildorian. And then I also do want to talk about this other thing we've been saying we want to get to uh, briefly, at least after we talk about the villains, and that is Luthien. What is Luthien's role? What's her job? What's her character like? So that we don't have her as just, you know, uh, uh, decorative prior to the story of Baron and Luthien. So um, uh, we'll talk about those. So our goal will be to talk about those three things next time. And our next time is next week. So you remember we had to change the schedule a while back. This is our second shifted week um because i had a bunch of things my poor son was getting his wisdom teeth out last week so um uh his poor head was all swollen out like a melon i felt really bad for him uh, but anyway he's he's pretty much recovered now but i was in a surgical waiting room during film film time last week so um oh uh, man I had, I had to i had to shift that um Anyway, but starting next week, we'll be back to the regular route. So we're, so we're going to have next week, the 22nd, and then we'll be back to our every our, our original every two week schedule. Uh, so we'll have uh, uh, we'll do the 22nd and then uh, our next one will be the uh, 8th of March. Um, uh, so that'll be good. OK, so that's what we'll do for next week. So think about those three things. I'd uh, 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 be interested to hear. I know you guys have been thinking about that, to some, those things to some extent already. Be interested to continue refining those things. Uh, and then looking forward after that, the next step in our process here in season four is to begin thinking to, to make a new season outline. Um with all of this stuff in mind, uh, uh, Philip Menzies, I think, made uh, a sort of comment that I laughed at because I thought it was a joke. Uh, we, it struck me as funny uh, to make a Gantt chart of uh, of our plot lines. But actually, uh, I have I, I, been convinced it's actually really a very good idea. Yeah, so, I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, thank God. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're there. So we're building a Gantt chart uh, on the uh, on the discussion boards. So we'll be we'll be dealing with that. Uh, time after next. So on March 8th, the goal will be to be discussing that and be ready to work our way through. And then remember, we're going to then go back, but we're not just going to do one episode per session since we've already talked through a lot of these things and we will have organized things. Uh, the goal will be then to kind of uh, work through uh, in more detail uh, a couple, a, a couple episodes at a time at a time as we move through the rest of the season there uh, after that. So as we work down through March and into April, we, we definitely need to, we definitely need to set aside a little bit of time to discuss the, uh, the special effects for the spell of bottomless dread. Yes. Yeah. Just, no, just want to plant that seed. That Folks think about point. that. That is a great point. Um, yeah. It, it, connecting back with the discussion we had last season, right, where we were talking about how we want to show 
Morgoth weakening himself, right? We want to convey to our viewers that Morgoth is dispersing his own spirit through and into his uh, servants and victims in order to accomplish his ends. And that in the end, he will be weakened by this. And we talked about how we could do this as far as his representation. Do we show him emaciated? Do we show him like with an increasing pallor? Do we show him looking, you know, more and more shrunken and ill? You know, how do we how do we, how do we convey this? Um, uh, so I definitely think that thinking about um, the spell of bottomless is this is another example, right? Um, again, especially thinking ahead to the Ring of Power. I want to have the spell of bottomless dread not just be a thing that Morgoth can do, but another one of those things where he has to expel his spirit. If he is going to crush the mind and spirit of Eldolate, he has to put forth himself to do it. Right? He has to weaken himself in order to do it. Um, and also the you know in order to properly enslave the uh, the whoever the Noldor is you know with the the other Noldor woman who's going to be doing the the craftsmanship right who's going to be working at his forge that too he's got to expend his spirit because she's not going to voluntarily do that right the older aren't going to be like yeah sure i'll volunteer as long as i'm here anyway i'll make stuff for you sauron and morgoth no problem like they're not going to do that right voluntarily they have to be enslaved their wills have to be enslaved uh in order to do that and we can show them as like almost like autonomous they can be almost mindless uh but they can be quite mindless because you can't be mindless and do what the Noldor do with their uh, forging, right? But, but yeah, thinking more about what the spell of Bottomless Dread does um, and how that looks. Maybe we can come back to that in the uh, uh, post-production episodes at the end of the season. But yep. I agree, Dave. That's a, that, is a, that is a good and important question. All right. Very good. Um, well, then that will be all for today. We will go. I was about to say on time. Well, only like, what, half an hour, 45 minutes late. It's all good. Um, half an hour earlier, or 15 minutes earlier than we often uh, yeah, uh, yeah. finished. So yeah. we'll, we'll just depends on, depends on how you define on time or early or right. late. Exactly. These are all very relative terms. Okay. Very good. So thanks, everybody. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.